Well, you can turn to the sermon outline now and uh, to a passage, couple passages of Scripture which bear upon the subject of self-control. We read them now as we begin. Paul writes first in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, I do all this, that is, he's been speaking about adapting himself to various cultures and situations. He says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And then over in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 through 13, these things have happened to, happened to them, that he's been talking about Moses and the Israelites, as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. For no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. This far, God's word. Well, let's begin by asking this question. What will we take from this sermon today? Clearly, the topic is, is included in the title, self-control. And we would expect to hear on certain occasions prayers on this subject, uh, sermons on this subject, because we know that part of Following Christ means to bring ourselves into conformity, moderation, and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, a certain self-mastery is in view. Well, we're talking now about an area that is extremely difficult to, to uh, change. We have the Holy Spirit, we have the power and the fruit of the Spirit within us, but, well, it's hard for us to make changes. It's hard to bring that self-mastery. This is the last of the fruit of the Spirit in the, in the list, this self-command, this power over self. But I want you to think of it not just in terms of the negatives, which is primarily the way most people do. It's like what I shouldn't do, what I shouldn't say, what I shouldn't eat, what I shouldn't buy, what I, where I shouldn't go, things I ought not to do. Those are certainly part of it, as we will see. But it is also a form of training, as we were reading in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, of preparation for the future. And in, as a matter of fact, in some cases, it means loving the Lord Jesus Christ back again, as we shall see. But not just in the negative sense, it also includes the flourishing of all the fruit in our lives. When we have self-control, we are gentle. When we have self-control, we are loving. We have joy. We have peace. These are all connected. This is kind of a form of shalom, of a holistic approach, as Kevin and I have been saying. These are not just 
these are not just discrete fruit of the Spirit. They are all of a piece, and they all fit together. The list is nine. There are, prob- there are definitely more than that that are the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We have been focusing on these. What is it? And the word in the Greek is egkratia. It is a conjunction of two things. Egg, ego, me, and kratia, power. Power over me. And it's illustrated in verse 25. As the athlete who competes in the games goes into strict training, they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last. Paul is saying, I'm running and working, I'm, I'm training and preparing myself, and I'm calling you to do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. It is a race. It is a battle. It is a striving. And this includes, to some extent, this matter of self-control. But it doesn't come naturally. People struggle with this. You can see the evidence of it. Just walk into Barnes & Noble. How to control books on how to control my finances, books on how to control my diet, books on how to control my relationships, books on how to control my tongue, books on how to control everything. And they're really just new covers on the same old books that were published 20 years ago or less. Do certain things, stop certain things. The Bible's solution is different. The Bible's solution, unlike the popular perception, is not just to stop or to start. It's somewhat more inwardly transformational. And that's why I say when you go out of here today, I want you to have a sense of having been equipped, maybe afresh, in this whole matter. What is it? Well, it's a control of one appetite in order to gain the prize. This is the list of vices in Galatians 5 describes one who has little or no self-control. The work of the Spirit brings control into our lives. But how does it do it, as we'll see? If we properly prioritize, we can become free and gain the prize, Paul says. So there again you say, I need to make some changes. It also carries with it this, the meaning of sanity. There's another several sections in the New Testament which use a different word than ekratia, and that word has to do with coming into wholeness mentally, physically, totally into what we would call a sane situation. Right-mindedness, clarity of mind and action. But we can't get this simply by taking a list and saying, all right, these are the things I cannot do, and these are the things that I can do. If you make those lists, you'll find that those lists are very similar to the ones in the books in Barnes & Noble. And it doesn't work. You cannot get self-control from a book or a seminar or a concept or a teaching. It is supernaturally granted. And of course the world doesn't have it. And of course they're interested in buying books about it because they're lost. They're looking for some kind of way to make sense of life. And they sense that their life is out of control. And so they want something that they can have that will make a difference. They're seeking principles, guidelines, seminars, structure. And it doesn't work. It never has. It never will. One of the first hints we have about 
what does work comes from Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph the exile, Joseph the virtual orphan, Joseph the one who was run off by his brothers, sold into slavery, sent down to Egypt, and there he was to live the rest of his life. Never to return home again, never to see his mother, never to be reunited fully in his homeland with all that was familiar. So he's in a faraway place. He's in a lonely place. He's in a place where he feels, no doubt, at times, God forsaken. And he could build the case in his prayer to say, Lord, you've forgotten me. You turned me out. You turned your back. And on one occasion, he's found to be attractive by Potiphar's wife. Potiphar, his boss. Potiphar, the one he works with on a regular basis. Potiphar, who controls whether he does well or not. Potiphar, who has almost complete control over life and death with him. His wife takes an interest in him, and she beckons him, and his response is this. No. I'm not going to do it. Now, that's self-control. Who would know? Who would care? How would it ever get reported? Why not have a little fun before life is over with? God's turned his back on me. Why not turn my back on him? But that's not what Joseph says. Something different is going on in his heart. Something different in his life. And we read in Genesis 39, he says to her, How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So he's not thinking just about putting a barrier around his activity and behavior and say, I will do this and I won't do that because of moral questions or teachings. He's gone right to the heart of it to say, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin? There's something between God and me that I don't want to break. There's something between us that I do not want to see strained, stretched, or broken. And it's more important to me than your affections and my loneliness. More important to me than anything. How could I then do such a wicked thing and sin against God? There's something going on inside here. And as I say, first of all, we have evidence and indication of it. He's not just saying, no, I shouldn't do this because there are rules against it. And there are. He's not saying, I wouldn't do this because I wasn't raised that way. And he wasn't. He says, I'm not going to do it because it would be not only a wicked thing in itself, but it would broach, breach my relationship with the one I care the most about. How did self-control happen in our lives? How did Joseph get to this point? Well, he had the Holy Spirit. He believed. He was a believer. He wasn't just a model Boy Scout young man. He was a believer in the living God. In fact, we know he wasn't a model Boy Scout young man because the reason he was sold into slavery is because he was a stinker. He, he took advantage of his father's favoritism to give a thumb in the eye to his brothers every day that he could. But Somewhere along the line, perhaps even in the midst of that behavior, his heart was changed. And he was coming to the, came to the point where he could refuse 
the private beckoning of Potiphar's wife. But self-control then does not come from a book, although the Bible teaches it, or from a seminar, or even from the support of others. And I would say at this point, let me just say again, you can't do it. Self-control on your own is too hard. Otherwise, they wouldn't be selling these books, these seminars, these principles, these teachers, these radio programs that do this, do this, do this, and you have control. You cannot get it even from a community. It has to come from somewhere else. And it's not gotten because we're trying to please God, because although it, you, you might lightly read this 1 Corinthians chapter 9 section, he's not talking about pleasing God. He's talking about looking beyond this world to something else. So it's not pleasing God that is our goal or our crown. We already have that in Christ. It happens, it flourishes when we do it for the sake of the gospel. Look at verse 23. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. I don't do it because of rules or regulations or, or any other reason except for the sake of the gospel. And he says, I want to share. He says, I want to give to other people what I already have. I want to so live in my life, so embody the gospel, so reflect it, so participate in it, that anyone who looks at my heart and life will see how beautifully the gospel operates. It's not just that I want others to become Christians through conversion. I want them to see that the gospel dominates me and is reflected in my life. If so, this desire will tend to bring your entire life under self-control. That's what he's looking for. I want my testimony to be that anyone can look at my life and see a measure of self-control throughout of it. In my speech, in my actions, in my attitudes, in everything I do. I'm not perfect. We're not reaching for perfection. Only Jesus was able to do this perfectly. But I seek to share the gospel by letting it be seen through me that the fruit of the Spirit is manifest and I have a measure of self-control. And that's what Paul is saying. I want others to see in my life such self-control. In the context here, he's talking about adapting culturally to various peoples and situations. And even though he's a Jew and was raised as a Pharisee, he's now learning how to get along with Gentiles. He's now learning how to get along with other languages and peoples and other places around the world that he'd never been before. I want to share this, he said. I want to bring my life under such self-control that I can eat with Gentiles. That I can have something to do with peoples of the world that would normally be either my enemies or I would consider to be dogs. I want to share these blessings. I want there to be such self-control in my life that I'm not judging them, that I'm not rejecting them, that I'm not so caught up with myself that I have no time for them, but that I am willing and ready Self-control, as I say, is not just the denial of certain vices. It's also the manifestation of certain flourishing. And the flourishing of my life, he says, I want to share these things. I want them to see that the gospel so dominates me and is so reflected in my life that I can begin to bring all the parts of my life under control. He says further that life is a race. We should look at it that way. It's a heartbreaking challenge. It's hard on the body, but good for us nevertheless. 
and we should want to run well. So to do so, we look to Jesus. He ran for a prize, us. And he received a crown, but it was of thorns. Think with me a minute now about Jesus' self-control. He was fully human. So he was subject to all of the temptations that we are all subject to. He was fully God, but both were true. And so when he saw something that tempts us, he was tempted too. And that includes all of the various appetites that we can think of. But think also with me about this. He was the Lord of creation. He was the Prince of Heaven. He had all power and authority under the guidance of his Father there in Heaven worth the Holy Spirit, and he gave all that up. And surely part of the time as he was walking on the dusty roads of Palestine, he thought to himself, I'm tempted to just show these people who I really am. He resisted that temptation. But on those occasions, when he did reveal who he was, when he walked on water, when he stilled the storm, when he fed the 5,000, so much was his self-control that he didn't even boast. He didn't say, well, now what do you think? He was sort of in a Cinderella position. He had had everybody else sort of criticizing him and putting work on him and asking him to do things. He never seems to have succumbed to self-pity. He had so much self-control that he could give without feeling sorry for himself. And he could hide his power without calling attention to himself when he did show it. This is magnificent self-control. And you just think about his life and you'll see time and time and time again where he exhibited the sort of Discipline, without judgment, without recriminations, without bitterness, that is truly astonishing. He, he mastered himself, humanly speaking. He was incomplete. Never, never a wrong word. Not just a cross word or a profane word, but never the wrong word. Never giving offense when it wasn't necessary. Amazing. And when we see, as I say in the application section here, when we see what Jesus did for us and how he ran that race and how he took the crown of thorns for us that we might have the crown of life, when we realize that we are his crown and that he loves us like that, it captures our heart and our imagination and it reorders my life and self-control grows. So this is where we want to spend the rest of our time this morning. Explaining, I think, what was going on in Joseph's mind when he said no. When he said, I just can't do this wicked thing and sin against God. Where did self-control come from? It comes from, of course, the Holy Spirit, but specifically it comes from the gospel. Thankful to Sally Patton for pointing out this passage In Titus chapter 2, listen now, as Paul talks. He says, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's verse 11. 
It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. It, the gospel, teaches us these things. And if we were just to look at the surface, we would say, oh yeah, I know what that is. That's the Ten Commandments. That's the do's and don'ts of the Bible. You can do this and you mustn't do that. But if we look at it holistically to what the Bible says more deeply, we say the gospel is more than just right and wrong. And self-control is about much more than just do's and don'ts. It, the gospel teaches us to say no to ungodly. How does it teach us to say no? You just learn that in Sunday school, or you learn it from the pulpit, or you learn it from the Ten Commandments in part. Yes, those are, those are beginning steps, but it's much richer than that. And I dare say that it would be impossible for Joseph to have resisted her in any kind of protraction. It seems that she often, did, often beckoned to him, not just once. He wouldn't have been able to resist it. He was too lonely, too far away, too forsaken maybe even too bitter, except that the gospel had gotten a hold of his life. What is the gospel in essence here? How does this grow within me? First of all, Jesus said, I can summarize it very quickly. You've just got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we see no more beautiful picture in all of Scripture than Joseph and Potiphar's wife's room than this. He clearly demonstrates that there was something going on inside. He doesn't just say, nope, can't do it. Nope, too risky. Nope, don't want to get caught. He says, I cannot sin against God. I cannot break this invisible relationship that exists between God and me because of what he has done for me through his son. And so Jesus says too in Matthew 5, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and it will be added to you. Indeed. Indeed. Now, I can give you three things to do. Paul gives them to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I can give you things to do that will help you in this matter of growing in self-control. The Bible gives them to us. It says in, in verse 11 of chapter 10, these words. These things happened to them, the Old Testament believers, as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. The Bible is full of warnings about immoderation and about sinful behavior and about lacking self-control. So when you take up your scripture, you're going to find reinforcement of the standards on every page. It's not just in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 where we find the, 20, the Ten Commandments. We can find these things everywhere. We don't find them just in the Old Testament. The New Testament is full of restrictions and prohibitions as well as encouragements. So the scriptures will help us to reinforce this. But I don't start there. I, want, I don't want to end there either. I want to start with the heart. Secondly, there is community. People can help us with this. He says in verse 12, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful so that you don't fall. Look around and get some help. Be careful. And don't look down on others who are sinning, for you might go the same direction. Growth and self-control comes from living and praying with Christians who can give you support and care. And then thirdly, trouble. Trouble will bring self-control. 
for the tests and difficulties that seize you and that will cause you to have to cling to God by faith. And this will break your self-confidence, which leads then to self-control. Self-confidence is the enemy of self-control. I say at the, in the title of the sermon, impulsiveness is the opposite of self-control. And I can dare say at this age in my life, looking back over it, I, at least 90% of my problems came when I acted too quickly, compulsively. At least 90% are directly attributable to a weakness on this point. I acted without thinking. I spoke without thinking. I did something. I, I let an attitude grow without thinking. Impulse buying, impulse eating, impulse drinking, impulse everything is the enemy of moderation and grace. And trouble can bring a breaking of that self-confidence and that desire to have my way when I see that I'm making wrong choices, when I see that the outcome is not so good, I begin to say, oh, wow, I need to reconsider what is happening. And trouble will do that for us. We can read the Bible in such a way as to become prideful and say, yeah, I know that, I'm doing that, I know that, I'm doing that, I know that, I'm doing that. But when trouble comes and we don't know it and we don't do it, we're humbled and self-control can come back in. It can flourish again. Because self-confidence and selfishness is the enemy of self-control. If I say, going through the day, I know what to do. I'm going to do this and this and this and this order. I'm headed for trouble. I'm not acting prayerfully. I'm acting on my own cognizance. And something's going to happen. Thank God for the troubles that seize me and cause me to reconsider. So what we've been talking about in summary is really a, a, a rehearsal of the story of the Gadarene demoniac. You remember the man who was out of his mind. And his body and his clothing and his reputation and everything was smashed. He was living out in the countryside. And he was the picture of a lack of self-control. He was a mess. That's what we were. When it comes to the issue of self-control, it's important for us to identify with this man who had many demons and whom Jesus healed. His nakedness, his chains, his isolation and his ravings are a picture of us all. Poignant, dramatic, yes, but they are a picture of us all out of control. You know I'm right because you know you struggle with being out of control in some ways. Everybody, it's slightly different. For we are all sinners, we're all enslaved to idols, and we're all under satanic assault. We need to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We are every one of us in this condition. We don't control our thoughts. We don't control our words. We don't control our actions. 
This man's case, as I say, is just more poignant and obvious. But then Jesus liberates him. Why is it that Jesus can forgive and restore him so quickly? The reason he can forgive this man and the reason he can forgive you and me comes at the end of Jesus' life. For at Calvary, we see Jesus, like us, stripped naked, a prisoner, isolated, and crucified outside the city. The man was banished away from civilization, and Jesus was banished outside the city. He was pushed outside with the common criminals. The misery of this demoniac vividly pictures the pain and the agony that fell on Jesus on the cross. Jesus was able to heal the demoniac because at the, in the end he exchanged places with him. Jesus was his substitute and ours. He was stripped so that we could become clothed with righteousness. He was thrown into deepest despair and agony so that we could know God's love and healing and forgiveness and have inner shalom, peace, quietness, self-control. It's only in the recognition of his sacrificial death that we can break the power of sin in our own lives. This is what reveals to us the wrongness of our efforts to save ourselves. You see, all the books are filled with things that say, I can save myself if I just get my act together. But the demoniac story reveals to us that we can't. We're too crazy. We're too broken. We're too cast down. So this reveals, Jesus' acts reveals the, 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 the un, unnecessary, unnecessary nature of, the, of our efforts to save ourselves. When we stop trying to save ourselves, then the things that drive us and enslave us can do so no longer, for Satan loses his power over us when we say, thank you, Jesus, for what you did for me. You did it. I didn't save myself. I was like the crazy man. Maybe I hid it better than he did, but I knew... I was like the crazy man out in the countryside whom everybody stayed away from because he wasn't right. But you made me right by exchanging places with me. And when I see the beauty of that exchange, then I say no to Potiphar's wife. I say no to these things that enslave me and come after me and that I constantly fight with because I see the beauty of the cross. And so it's the great exchange if I can replace... Potiphar's wife's beckonings with the agony and beauty of Christ's death on the cross, then it's easy. I have a simple choice. I choose him, for he chose me. That's the way to self-control. Joseph knew it. The, the demoniac learned it. And it happens for every one of his, his people. I don't know what it is for you, what, what areas are that you, you're struggling with. I just say, put the vision of the cross and the sacrifice of Christ in that place. 
and compare it to what it is you're going after. And what you're going after will seem like a mess of pottage, a bad bargain by comparison. Potiphar's wife was beautiful. Joseph was lonely. He had an opportunity. Why not take it? Why not do the impulsive thing? Especially when there were repeated invitations. I mean, I just didn't have to say no once. I had to keep saying no. Why would I do that? In a strange and foreign land, under the oversight of a God who had seemingly rejected and forsaken me, the only answer is because of the cross. And because Jesus loves me even more than I can love him back. That leads to self-control. And that's our hope today. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, help us to see the depth and the extent, how high and wide and far and high and low is the, is the love of God for us. We see it at the, at the cross, but we so quickly forget. And we're so often tempted Lord, we've tried time and time again these various suggestions and principles, and they don't work. Our only hope is not that we would save ourselves, but that you would save us. And we thank you that you have. And we pray now as we go forth that you might manifest greater self-control in our life through the cross, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who loved us, and gave himself for us. Enable us to be like Joseph in Potiphar's wife's rooms, to say no to ungodliness, and to live self-controlled and upright lives in this dark generation. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.